Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Mad Sounds podcast. This week, as ever, I'm joined by... I am Matt Maynard. Here I am. Not the one and only Matt Maynard. I've asked you, I've backstage, I've asked you to tone that down. We're an equal yeah. parish here. We're not <laughs> here to further our careers. I've been anything. shouted at by the boss. So Yeah. Well, I don't like to see myself as the boss, but you know, there are some rumours <laughs> circling about who wears the trousers in this relationship. Matt, who have we got on this week? Well, we do have someone that I'm going to describe as the one and only. is John Dawkins. Um, and what a fabulous chat he was he was some great entertainment he, he works in the music industry so obviously this podcast we are meeting the people behind the scenes in the music industry you know we're going to hopefully talk to some uh managers like john um people that work on the tour all the people that make the things that happen in the music industry happen um that you don't see so with absolutely john, yeah. with john he is uh the manager of so many different artists and bands currently tom grennan who uh is destined for big things i think and an indie classic that we used to love, The Enemy. Those he got a number one album with them. So, and then also loads and loads of other artists along the way. Yeah, he's got the Libertine, he's got Milburn. We're just gonna have a chat to John about his career, what it really takes to manage some of these big artists, and um, there's some fantastic anecdotes at the end. Please make sure you stick around for them. I was nearly rolling on the floor when he told the last one. So yeah, yeah. without further ado, here's John Dawkins. My name's John Dawkins. I'm a director of various artist management. Uh, I'm a music manager. I've worked in the music industry for coming up to 18 years now. Uh, we currently manage um, Tom Grennan, Supergrass, Ash Nico, Loyal Karna, uh, LaRue, The Libertines, uh, and about 15 other acts. I've previously managed and worked with uh, The Enemy, uh, The Fratellis, The Twang, uh, obviously still work with Reverend and The Makers. Uh, Milburn, got a long history in indie music, uh, ran a nightclub, been a tour manager and basically blagged my way to where I am now. <laughs> You've done it all then. Where did it all start? Where did it all start for you? Obviously, The Enemy were, you know, perhaps the, the catalyst for the start of your career. How, how did The Enemy come about? Well, going back a bit further than that, actually, it's funny because um, I, I always wanted to be a footballer like you do when you're 14, 15. And you were pretty good. Uh, I was all right. Steady player. You know, I was a, I played a few times for Cov at junior level, moved to Shrove, yeah. did a year there, and then played semi-pro, played at Neaton Borough when they were in the conference, and then Yedin when I moved to London. But I wasn't good enough. Um, but I love the game. Did a sports science degree. Don't know why. And then, um, yeah, just kind of got a shit job and my, luckily for me my cousin was in a band um, signed to Virgin in America in LA and uh, I just went to LA like with about 100 quid in my pocket to tune his guitar and that was kind of my in and when I was working there uh, with them we toured America a couple of times I was out there learned the ropes but um, 
meanwhile in the UK, I managed to get a job at a place called the Barfly in Camden through a good, good friend of mine called Michael Lafferty that actually runs one of the biggest uh, van hire companies in the music industry now. Uh, but at the time, uh, the Barfly in Camden was the place to be because, I mean, literally yeah. everyone went through there. Is this the one that became the Camden Assembly? Is this what it... Yeah, it's the Assembly now, which is a shame. Yeah. Camden at that point was like the heartbeat of, it felt like you were in the centre of the universe. Uh, I yeah. remember when folks came over and they were struggling in America, but they, they kind of broke out of the UK. But everyone played there, and I saw literally every band that did anything from Arcade Fire. I see all the White Stripes in the Marathon fucking kebab house up the road from there. Um, oh, God, man. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Strokes. Um, mate, yeah, yeah, I served a pint behind the bar to fucking James Bond. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, That's hey, amazing. I was in there. That was, that was the hub. And then from that, you kind of just rolled out. And um, there was a guy that I bumped into, actually, that was working with my my cousin's band a guy called David Bianchi and I still work with Dave now we've got the company together various with the two of the directors and we employ about 13 people but that that journey with him I mean that's 17 years ago and he gave me a chance he just let me come and sit in his office and kind of learn the ropes from him a little bit and he had no real money but I just did double shifts at the at the pub and we just went from there I just learned day in day out and um you know look fortunately for me Dave's a great great manager um very, very intelligent, well-read man. Uh, great ear for music and a drive, a phenomenal drive. So it was, it was great to learn from Dave. And, and then I did a couple of years with him and then scouted loads of stuff, like bought loads and loads of stuff in and then went out, tour managed loads of like Canadian and American hardcore bands, Alexis on Fire, The Bled, Black Dahlia Murder, uh, Californian punk pop band called The Halo Friendlies. I did loads of tour managing on sign just to keep, kind of keep the money coming in Yeah. while I was scouting for Dave and working at the bar in Camden. And then eventually with the enemy, he, he was like, look, you know, blah, 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 blah. Just keep scouting, keep scouting. And then that just kind of landed on my desk via my mum, weirdly. Um, the drummer worked for my mum at Federal Express in Coventry. Just, you know, I mean, a regular like answering the phone kind of first job out of school kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I trust my mum because my mum was a first generation skinhead, not the second, not the racist lot, the good. No, lot. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, she was into like um, you know reggae chartbusters, Tamla, Motown. You know, I was brought up on a good diet of music with her yeah. well, mod as well. So I really trust my mum's opinion and my dad's, and uh, she just kept badgering me to listen to this demo. And it was the enemy, and it was, on the demo was um, Forty Days and Forty Nights, which was yeah, on the album, uh, Dancing All Night and a song called Let Me Know, which is, I can't remember if that made one of the later records, but I listened to it and I just absolutely loved it. And um, made a call, rang Liam, and uh, I actually met, met the first time I met The Enemy, I met them outside the Cov ground, and Cov were playing Celtic in, I think it was Richard Shaw's testimonial game, and I met them under the big Cov badge on the side of the Rico Arena, and that would have been, oh, that would have been like, February 2006, something like that. And within 14 months, 15 months of meeting, and we were at number one, number one album. It's the first wow. one. You, when you were scouting for Dave, did, do you think you have a knack for finding music? Because it's, it's, not, it's not a job you really apply for to be a scout. Obviously, you were, in the, you were working for him anyway, and you were told to go out and watch lots of different bands. Do you think you have a knack, or do you think you learn that just through seeing so many bands, and you can pick apart the shit from, and the gold, basically? Well, it's like anything, isn't it? I mean, it's like, there's no right or wrong, really. I think... Um, um, I definitely, it's an opinion. It's, it's just a fucking opinion. And I've got a decent track record uh, when I look back at it, actually. But I think when you're working at somewhere like the Barfly and you're watching three bands a night, six days a week, 
Yeah, yeah. Get to the bookers there were booking some of the most exciting new stuff coming through. It became quite easy to kind of put your, you know, like spot stuff that was there. Um, and I remember bringing a few things through early doors at uh, what was called Grand Union Management, which is now obviously various artist management that I'm a director of. And um, we didn't quite, we didn't take it on or whatever. And it went on to do well, like Future Heads, Kaiser Chiefs, um, Gallows, you know. And I thought, yeah, I've got a good track record here. And with The Enemy, I just had a real hunch that there was something there that was special because I knew they were good players because I, I, I knew them before in a band called Bridges and I knew that they were quite young but they were like kind of really good blues players and, and everyone yeah. in college would talk about them because they were like technically Tom and Liam were excellent players um, and I knew that Tom could play um, violin and Liam was like a jazz fusion drummer so I was like well this is interesting they didn't musicians. Know, I, I knew that about them yeah and they straightened their act up and were like, no, this is what we're doing now. And it was like, okay. And the demo came through my mum. So I was like, and being from Cov, there's always a chip on your shoulder that no one seems to know where it is. So yeah. when you big city, I mean, it's the ninth biggest city in the UK. Like, you know, there's 400,000 people there. But you'd go abroad and everyone would be like, where are you from? And you'd be like, yeah, we're from Cov. And everyone went, where the fuck's that? And we're like, near where we're from. So there's always this thing about, you know, trying to put your city on the map. Yeah, yeah. And you were doing that together with, you know, your yeah, band. With that in hand, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to have a go at this. And how influential were you on their, do you think, on their original success? Like, you know, it was was it just talent for them, do you think? Or, you know, were there things that you were doing that were getting them to, to the levels they were and getting a number one record? No, I mean, you know, like, like, like any band, you know, what we were bringing was a dramatic amount of um experience and mm. how not to do things and and cutting out time wasting so most bands if you think about it you know they kind of spread the net like 180 and they're just looking everywhere whereas when we come in it's like don't do that fine tune it yeah. that's this person right what we need to do here is set up with this person put a little marketing team into position sort out a plan of attack in terms of release pattern they did have a good marketing strategy i remember being in school and loads of kids just having like the stickers the enemy stickers were a massive thing they were everywhere and like just little things like that were probably pretty groundbreaking i think we think with with the enemy it was like you know i mean obviously there was what's what i call kind of like almost like the second wave wave of brick pop essentially it's like yeah. 10 years later, you had this, like, kind of, you know, you had loads of people coming through. Twang Fratelli's, um, you know, editors before that. Not not that they were kind of in it, but, you, you know, you, you know, you you had all these bands, Cortina's coming through. Yeah. I actually thought we were quite lucky to get the enemy away, because I thought maybe we're coming at the end of it a little bit. Yeah. So Arctic Monkeys were a big influence yeah. on the enemy, as were Oasis and The Verve. And... Um, with the enemy, it was a sense of they weren't really Liam. Liam and Andy were to a point, but Tom was actually very, very intelligent young man. But we knew that as a front man, he and he kind of knew he had to play some kind of a role or a part. And uh, very intelligent, but there was no real message. And so we sat down and said, you know, what is the culture of this band? What are we saying? What is going on? And at the time, all the car factories in Cov were closing down, and people were losing their jobs and you know, there was a real sense of, you know, people were just disenfranchised with things and, and, and government. And, you know, there was a message there from a young lad who could definitely carry the message and was more than intelligent enough to, to have a conversation of anyone on a, on a political level through Clark, where we create a culture 
um, that they were coming out of this depressed city and they wanted to say a message. Very much following the footsteps of what the specials did probably 30 years earlier, 35 years earlier. So that was the messaging with, with that. And then from that moment, we gave Tom a bunch of books about music and politics. And he was well-read anyway and understood and had his finger on the pulse in terms of, you know, what was going on politically and culturally at that particular time. And from that, he just kind of had an identity and, and all of a sudden the songs were just coming thick and fast. And the beauty that they had is that they'd not done a lot of their growing up in public. They'd been playing since they were 14, 15 in the pubs in Cov. Anyway, so they had three or four years of making mistakes and honing their sound and becoming a tight band. And they were for, for a three-piece at their age. They were fucking unbelievable live. And yeah. I think that, along with the songs and what was going on at the time and the cultural kind of win that was behind them and the messaging that Clark had and the fact that he could give amazing sound bites in an interview and carry that band as a, as a front man. It, it was just, it was relentless, man. I mean, it was the quickest thing I've ever worked on. And why do you think that they didn't sustain it then? Because obviously the first album, well, number one, that's the peak, isn't it? And from that moment, there's only one way to go, isn't there really? Unless you, unless you sustain it. There is, but, but, you know, I kind of feel sorry for the band in a way, actually, in, in hindsight. I mean, I had a falling out with Dave, who I'm now a business partner with. I mean, we didn't talk for four or five years over something very stupid. Mm. So I was out of the picture then uh, for album two. And I think that, you know, I was still in touch with them to a point. But I think that what happened there was you've got a bunch of lads that have never had any money to all of a sudden having a lot of money and a lot of people from, you know, what would be big record labels in London blowing smoke up your ass. And all of a sudden it was like, well, what do I write about now? I don't have much time. You, you've got your whole life to write your first record. And the second record is like, fuck, I've got, you know, 12 months to turn this round. And I think that, you know, and I'm not afraid to say it, I think Tom believed his own hype a little bit, but there was also a lot of pressure on him. You know, and I think, I think in hindsight, there are some good songs on that second record. But I think that maybe the presentation and the way that it rolled out and, and the fact that the the message and some of the sound bites didn't move on from the first one. Um, that kind of let you down a little bit. They were kind of a bit of a Marmite band in the sense that, you know, they could rile people, especially with what some of the things that Tom would say. But I think I feel sorry for Tom in a sense, because I think he felt that he had to play that part and feed that kind of, you know, lad culture that were following the band, which maybe he felt a bit awkward with. You've only got to look at like um, Oasis. Well, you know, Noel's not really a lad, is he? He's, he's actually probably just a stoner who's very intelligent <laughs> yeah. and his fan base is a load of lads essentially, you know? So I think, I think, you know, if we could go back and do that again, it would obviously be micromanaged a lot better than it was. And um, I'm sure Tom and the band would do things differently as well. But there are some good songs on that second record, but there are some fucking shockers as well. And I think at that point then, you know, everyone's always looking for the new thing. It's kind of like, it was difficult. Yeah. Kind of, like you're kind of swimming against the tide a bit then. So in your, with your role as a, as, a, as a manager, I guess, when you say there are some good ones and some shockers, do you let the band know that or do you give them creative license to go, it's your record, we're going to put it out, we're going to back I it? I wasn't there on that and I, and, I, and I don't dispute, and I always say this to Dave because we kind of look over that as one that kind of, you know, I mean, they got that big at one point. I remember um, they went on the last Oasis tour with Kasabian and Kasabian didn't want to do the Coventry show because they felt that it was the enemy's town and they wouldn't feel comfortable going on after them. And it was at the point where Kasabian had fire and were fucking massive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. They should have pressed the button and gone to that next level at that point and they didn't. I think they regret that. But with The Enemy, 
Um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's tough. I mean, would it have been any different if I was there or not? I don't know. But what I do know is, is that one of my main traits is that I'm very honest with people. And, you know, sometimes people like it, sometimes they don't. But you've got to stay true to yourself, you know. And it's, it's difficult. I've had conversations with people where I've told them something isn't good enough. And then, you know, all of a sudden they'll just switch off to you for a couple of weeks. But on the main, I tend to work with people that I have a very, very good connection with. And you try and maintain that conversation. You know, like me and Gwen, and we had a lot of success on the first record. And, you know, the second record is, you know, we're on the cusp of releasing that. But we have exactly the same relationship as we had four years ago when I met him in the pub. You know, and if we can maintain that, then there'll never be any bullshit. Yeah, you see, you seem really close with um, with, with Tom Grennan and Dark. Obviously, the second album, it's going to be it's going to be a big one because with the with the success success of his last single and the last, the last thing was out last week is that correct yeah 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 that, well the thing the thing is with that i mean because of corona the, that record was going to come in may then it got moved to august so it's going to get moved to next year by, by the look of really? it it's possible to release a record in the current climate if you can't announce a tour and do a ticket bundle with yeah, yeah, yeah. so you know the tour was meant to be in october i think that's been pushed to march and it's a bit of a disaster for the whole industry to be honest but well, just yeah. going just going back on your your honesty with the artists you work with um, would you say you're a demanding manager and um, would you say that causes tensions because these people are touring the world they're on the front of every magazine or I guess not magazine anymore but on the telly doing radio shows all the time when they've got someone who isn't creating the music like yourself telling them that's not good enough does that does that lead to a lot of riffs or do some people take to that and take your your advice as a sound head in the, who's got a lot of experience in the business well essentially they're paying me for that advice so if you you know I mean I take 20% net off the bottom of any profit not off the top right which is a standard um and you know if you don't if you don't want to listen to what i've got to say then what's the point you know what i'm saying and it's it's only my opinion and i won't always weigh in but it's about knowing when to give somebody a cuddle when they need a bollocking when to tread on them when to you know and it's you know it's not always i'm not always right i'm not saying that but it's i will have a conversation would you say and would you say you had artists in the past that you felt maybe could have gone bigger but the relationship broke down too early in the cycle for it to really flourish because of that honesty or do you think it's actually worked the other way maybe your honesty has put them on a different track and they've gone to release i think both i think the i think the enemy on the first record just listened to and listened to everything we said and executed everything we said it was almost like uh the clash song complete control which is about bernie rhodes who managed the clash mm. and, you know his big thing was i need complete control you know and, and you know you wear this you do that and it was a little bit like that with the enemy in the early days and but they were so hungry and they really trusted us and i think that's why it works and sometimes people get into a position after that where they might think it's a little bit oh well we did this and we, it's like well you know and that's where you might break down a little bit and yeah i've had friction with people where it ain't worked out and and that's that and but i've also had friction with people where it has worked out more times than not and you know, and do you find it, it's easier to have that conversation with someone you're really close with, like like a Grennan or like an enemy? You got, mate. You got. That's that's the point. I think everybody I work with, I have a bond with that I can have an honest conversation with. Yeah. But it's always respectful and it's never nasty. And um, you know, there's certain people that you know you need to kind of come at it from a bit of a different angle. But it's always fairly direct because otherwise we're time wasting absolutely but i'm not i'm not i'm not afraid to fucking put my hand up and say i'm wrong either so you know that that's i mean that's a good thing within itself i think so you know you must know a lot of other managers on the circuit who manage other big artists do you think then that there's other artists that are receiving different management styles because they can they can't react to you know the way you do things you need to be closer to the artist you need to be able to speak to them frankly and honestly 
would you think there's there's artists that couldn't deal with that and you know that they receive just you know oh gotcha yeah there's loads of them but that's why they go you know they go west the project goes west or you can spot it a mile off and then but it's you know i'm quite hands-on in making records where there's other managers that won't get stuck into that at all right they'll be hands-on in like going out and getting a sync or or taking as many meetings as they can I, I don't really take any meetings um maybe i should maybe i should do a bit more of that but that's not really my thing i kind of sit in the office i kind of probe facilitate emails come up with ideas strategize speak to my artists as much as I can and, and get involved on the, making the record and, and coming up with a culture and a vision and then and then implementing what I think is right to achieve the goals that we've set, you know what I mean? Whereas some managers have got a much different style for me, very much hands-off. But again, you know, that, you know they, it, again, you're only as good as your artist though as well, you know? Yeah, of course. Um, so just, being, just being a manager, so you're, one of your artists has had a fantastic album, you want to tour the album straight away. From your perspective, and we want to sort of go behind the scenes in this podcast and give people an insight into what it's really like having so many bands and getting everything organised for them. Where does it start? Do you think, right, I think they can play Brixton, but maybe they've got a chance of selling the Alley Pally out. Do you have, that, have to have a lot of judgment in that? And is, is it your call what venue they play in and how many dates they do? What's, what's your pivotal role in that whole setup? So what, yeah. you're, what you're saying to me is we've, had, we've got an album out, it's done well. So you have a live agent that you put in place. There's, there's hundreds of live agents and I've worked with quite a lot, but I know what live agent would be a particularly good fit to a certain eye. So for instance, Tom Grennan, I work with a guy called Matt Bates. Matt Bates works with the 1975 Wolf Alice, uh, you know, loads of, loads, you know, two-door cinema club. He's a good fit for Tom. I have a good relationship with Matt and he's, 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 he works on intelligence-based numbers from promoters, from how quick Grennan or Salah show out, trajectory of other artists that have had a similar path to Tom. And he judges it on numbers, looking at the numbers and a feeling as well. So with Grennan, I think in the... I'm just looking at a post on my wall now. So from February 2017, I think in the October 2016, we did a small place called Slaughtered Lamb for Grennan. 110 tickets. And we thought, oh, we'll put it on. We'll see what happens. Yeah. If we do, we'll just fill it out. We'll invite a few faces down. Sold out within like five minutes. And we were like, mm, that's interesting. Then we went on and did Bush Hall, 400 cap in February 2017. That went really quickly. Yeah. All of a sudden yeah. then, you know you've got a pulse. You know what the plot is moving forward into the record. And you know what the trajectory is. But with something like that, with Grennan, he just outstrips tickets to people that follow him. So one in two people that follow him on his socials will buy a ticket. His social numbers are, but that kind of correlation of one and two is frightening because yeah, you've got yeah. real, right. So if I look at that, we went from Bushall, then two months later we played Union Chapel, which is nine hundred. So we went from four to nine hundred in two months in London. Normally in London, what you would do is is give yourself five to eight months in between shows, right? So then after yeah. the April, we waited five months and did Coco. That's fifteen hundred. So we've gone up another six hundred. Then exactly a year later from doing Bush Hall which is 400, we went around the corner and did Shepherd's Bush Empire. That's 2,300. So within a year, we've gone from 400 to 2,300. And then by the end of that year, I've done Brixton Academy. But we, we, look at the, we look at the information that comes in, how fast the tickets are selling, what the demand is, so on and so forth. And you make judgments based on that. And do you put pressure on your artists to do more dates? Well, obviously, no, with their mental health in mind. No, so I, I, you know, it's about supply and demand, and it's about not overkilling yourself. At the end of the day, people know they can see you every other week. They're not going to fucking bother. You need to make that ticket a hot ticket. You know what I'm saying? But I'm also well aware that 
I need to go out and kind of feed people. So you've got to find the balance and you take advice off local promoters, national promoters and my live agent. And we, we judge, we judge it off all the information that's in front of us and make collective decision that is the right call for the artist to, because ultimately what you don't want is an artist that's just here and gone, you know, with somebody like Grennan, I've got a 20 year plan minimum. Yeah. So it's just like slow, 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 you know? Um, and, and in terms of uh, the day-to-day, what kind of relationship do you have to have with, for example, his label? Do you know, is there a bit of pushback between the two of you sometimes? Or... I, think, I think right at the start when people are trying to artists, you, you kind of do the rounds to, it's never really about money for me with, with record labels. People throw money at you all at one. It's not about that. It's about what the marketing spend is. It's about what the plan is and what people are in that building and do they understand what you're trying to achieve and are you compatible with them? So that's what we go around and do. It's like guess who. You start yeah. things down and all of a sudden it's pretty obvious where you should go. Grennan, sure. um, I did a quite a small deal with the record label and we were offered twice, three, four times as much as other labels, but it was right to go there because the p- particular people that were the marketing and label manager in there, we just connected with and they understand what the vision was. And the A&R guy was excellent in there. And he, you know, we, we knew what we wanted to achieve and we knew what steps we needed to take. And there was not that much pressure going in that building. And that was perfect because we knew we'd recoup quickly. Same with the publishing deal. And when you do that, you don't have the pressures. You sign a massive deal, the pressure's on straight away. When you have an artist you've got really high hopes for, when they don't hit the big numbers, how responsible do you feel? Because you said you're only as good as your artist and maybe the calibre of the album, or if it's a second album, isn't as good. How, how responsible do you feel as the person who's guiding them through their career? Yeah, I feel more responsible than anyone and I feel more responsible to the label as well because I, I, I'm more cautious with other people's money than my own. Um, yeah. Taking taking people's money and trying to do something with it, you know, that's a lot of pressure and you're dealing with somebody's career and that's a lot of pressure. As long as you know that you've given a hundred percent and your artist has given a hundred percent, then if it doesn't work, it's difficult. You know, like sometimes I've worked on projects sometimes and I can always see where the problem is. And when I do a post-mortem, I'm like, well, that was obviously the issue. It's when you've got an artist where you cannot put your finger on what the issue is. That's the real conundrum to me. And that's what drives me. You know, that's what I like, not thrive on because that sounds like I enjoy it. That's not what I do it for. But I want to know that I'm rounded enough to kind of spot these issues way in advance. So the way that I look at my artists is, is that I, as a, as an art, I put myself into an outside punter's perspective. You know, I look at other artists that are the managers and labels have and I can fucking rip them to pieces because that's what I do. Because they're my competition. I'm like, they, they're shit at this. Look at the state of that. But I do it with my own artists take myself out of that space and look at them and try and see where the faults are. How I, if somebody else manage them, what would I be fucking saying about them? And then I try and take that back and then implement it into like the changes and but in a positive manner, you know? And um, yeah, it's, uh, that's my style of management. You know, that's how I've always worked. And I, I think I'm a, I think I'm a pretty good manager. Um, I don't, I don't think I'm a great manager yet. Um, I, I still think I've got a bit to learn. But, you know, I'm 15, 16, 17 years in. The first thing I ever managed went straight to number one. I haven't had a number one album since. I've had a lot. I've had a lot. Of... Do you think Grennan's is going to go number one? I think if, if again, it's, it's about look, though. It's like who else is releasing? Mm-hmm. What's the state of play at that time? You know, we, we, if Corona hadn't got, got in the way, I'd have put every penny I've got in my bank on that going to number one. But Corona, yeah. Corona's fucked you now because 
all of a sudden you've took six months of releases in terms of albums because all you've got now is data-driven singles that everyone's trying to sign. So everyone will move the records to third quarter or first quarter 2021 and it's a congested market. And if you come up, because you, you don't know who's releasing, then you shelve it in. You can't just move it because Noel's coming with an album or, you know, uh, I don't know, Harry Styles is popping a new record out. All yeah. of a sudden... You know, so it's a, it's a tough one. What I will say though with Grennan's new record is I think it will do twice the business that the first one did. So if wow. we get lucky on the release pattern, he, he deserves a number one. Yeah, you know, I think, think, you know, he works hard, he's a class act. You know, it, 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 he's one artist that I've worked with where I'm like, it's mad because he will be going into Ali Palinets, which is 10,000 capacity venue, but I still don't think he's given the respect or the opportunities that he quite deserves yet. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, interesting. I think that he's, you can see the trajectory. It's been such a steady rise, hasn't it? And if he keeps going like that, then he will only keep getting bigger. Um, you, yeah. You after stuff, that's when you start making mistakes, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you just touched on Corona there. So how has it been different for you? Are there, have there been any plans that you've put in place where you thought, you know, trying to be innovative and try and come up with things that you can promote your artist by doing? Is anyone doing any... Oh, look, gigs online and things like that corona i mean fucking hell. I mean, you know it's the most fucking mental thing ever isn't it i mean no yeah. one this it's 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 i'm not a religious man but it's like an act of god isn't it you know but yeah. uh, you know what it has made me realize is that our, our particular business is based a lot on um live music mm. so i think um i think just on festivals alone and as a, we're not a big company you know we're, we're 13 man and boy you know but Losing half a million pound just on festivals alone is a fucking body blow for a company like ours. I bet. Uh, fortunately for us, we've been quite uh, careful with our investment and our money, and and we'll get through it. And 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 we've got a lot of young staff that we feel responsible for, and uh, we don't want to lose any of them, you know. And it, but if we, for you know, if we if we cut their wages too far, and you know they can't live in London, and then all of a sudden we're, in, we're in, you know, and we trust every one of them. We've invested in them as people, and and we want to keep everyone. So, from that perspective, um, it's made us realise how lucky we are in terms of the way that we've, uh, you know, nestled money away, and also what staff we've got around us. But it's also made us realise that we need to change our business model slightly when we come back, in light of if this something like this ever happened again. You know, we can't be so reliant on life. Um, but so do you think that will have a profound effect on the music industry in general as well? I think a lot of people will go out of business. Yeah. But I think what will be good, a good thing about it as well is it will cut out a lot of the shit. There's a lot yeah. of shit festivals <laughs> the way that, are, that are, you know, saturating the market. And there's a, right. lot, of, a lot of poor managers around and management companies that are skirting around, living a bit hand to mouth that can fucking go as well. You know, yeah. and I think we'll come out of it a stronger, better industry that needs to get you know it's it's a it's a small you know business really essentially but we all need to help each other you know if there's a bun fight running back for like live promoters to squeeze as much money out as they can because they've lost a year's money and all it's just not gonna be healthy because that will then affect artists affect managers affect management companies and all of a sudden you're killing killing the system that works and we need to all help each other with the venues with the developing artists to to, to come through um and what corona's done is essentially we've signed a lot of artists into labels to be artists but all of a sudden it's like they've all got to be fucking tv celebrities running tv and magazines through social media platforms you know every fucker went live the first couple of weeks it was driving me bananas like a bunch <laughs> of narcissists just baying for attention but you know i think that that kind of 
nosedive stuff because everyone was like, well, hang on a minute, you know, these massive artists, it doesn't really affect, but what about all these other artists where there were little branding opportunities? Mm. Everyone's doing everything for free. So all of a sudden there's no money coming in from branding. It started to become a bit of a problem. But I think what's going to happen now is, is that the festivals that all have the sponsorship from beer brands or whatever, all the money will be reallocated and then they'll be like, well, we've got this pot of money and we can spend it somewhere. So hopefully smaller acts will get opportunity to do something for a little bit of money that will make them help them survive or develop or put put money back into recording or whatnot um it has changed that sort of thing and i think it's also meant that artists who didn't really want to embrace social platforms either need really needed to embrace it and learn and understand it or just take another step back but i think a lot of artists who are not fiscally or financially in a position to step away have really had to understand that 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 is where it's at you know Sadly, I think that um, music's the last thing when it comes to breaking an artist. It's everything else outside of that. And the music's the, the kind of cherry on the cake. So a lot of my artists that kind of, some were good at social media, some find it difficult, some look good online, but actually hate it in the background. They've had no choice. They've had to really, really embrace it. And labels and social media teams have had to really earn their fucking money the last couple of months, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously it was the low point of the coronavirus at the moment and you say artists having to find new ways. Just for, from a personal point of view and hopefully get onto a few anecdotes and stories in here. Corona is obviously not John Dawkins' fault, but there may be points in your career where you felt you were at a real low point. Just in your career as a manager, what, could, could you take us through some of those points and obviously some of the highs as well, which we'll come on to at the end of the podcast, but a, a time where you, you felt like this, why have I got myself into this? Oh God, yeah, loads of times. I mean, it's a thankless task because, you know, sometimes you work on stuff and it's successful, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and that's great. But when it doesn't work, when it works, like the artist is like, well, obviously it's because of me kind of thing. Yeah. I start believing the hype a little bit. Um, and I think that's where problems can come. And I think the enemy possibly a little bit like that. Um, Clark, maybe a little bit. Um, but I don't blame him because I've probably been the same in his position. But then there's been other, th- other times where things have gone wrong and it's the manager's fault. It's like, well, actually, it's your fault as well. Because unless you can say that you've honestly given 110% hand on heart and somebody else hasn't, it can't be anyone's fault, can it? Mm. You know, and sometimes you can run at 110% both, both artist and manager and, you know, it's just not written in the, in the stars, is it? It's, it's yeah. a very tough times. But the amount of times I've... Even, like, when I'm doing really well, you know, like, like the last few years I've had a fucking great run but sometimes i'll sit in the office for like three days and just think fucking hell you know every time i release it's like a different world you know it's like the industry changes so quickly and you sit there and you're like fucking hell, i don't know what the fuck i'm doing here and then you know you start doubting yourself and then you'll get an email or a phone call and you're like fucking hell i'm the man i am the fucking bollocks and it's just one email you're always one email away from like <laughs> it's a real roller coaster but what what the what the thing is that drives me is I just want to affect popular culture and I just right. want, I'm there for the love of music. I've never really made any decisions based on money. I'm not asked about though, to be fair. Does um, that mean that you're choosing music that you're really into and you're, you know, a certain type of music? Cause all the bands you've sort of talked about are of a certain type, you know, bands that our listeners would love in the guitar bands, basically. Do I you just, kind of avoid like the shit pop music? Well, yeah, I mean, I've worked with one proper pop artist, but I think she's one of the most credible left-field pop artists. That was Charlie XCX. Yeah, yeah. Our company managed for 10 years. Um, but we love working with her because she's a she's fucking punk, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what 
years. Her spirit's unbelievable. As good as any rock and roll star I've worked with, I'll tell you that now. Yeah, yeah. It's work rate, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, on, I've got to connect with the music and I've got to connect with people. And if right. I don't, I just, because, you know, that's what drives you. You know what I mean? You, for the, the will of wanting to make it work for somebody, the will of believing in that music. You know, I always think about making records, most records, uh, for the 14-year-old me that first heard Oasis. Yeah. That's what you're trying to affect. You know, I remember somebody coming up to me going, oh, the fucking Enemy album, shit. <laughs> first Enemy album. And I looked at him and I went, mate, you're fucking 40 years old. You know what I'm saying though? Like, you know, that, you know, and you know, like each to their own, but like, why bother coming up to me saying that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah of course. I, uh, you, I sit on the you, couch at home and my missus slating me. What do you think that, um, or why do you think that there's less successful guitar bands now? Why, why did we have our golden generation? in well obviously the 90s and then it came again with the indie era sort of the the noughties the mid noughties and now there's not that there's not loads that are you know big they're not in the mainstream i don't think they're good enough right is that what it is just a lack of talent you think yeah, i think I, I i don't i think they have to do a lot of their growing up in public i don't think the culture's good enough i don't think everyone helps each other enough um the culture moves too slowly um it is anchored in the past Right. All the kids that are in it are dressing up like they're from fucking 1996 or, <laughs> or 1967. There's a reason why bands like Buffalo Springfield or Hendrix or whatnot look the way they did, because that's what they looked like at the time. Yeah. They were dressing like they were from the 1930s. And that's the problem. It's like we need to move forward. This Topshop indie Lego head fucking, well, I'm in an indie band, so I've got to grow my hair like Turner 2006. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's not progressive. Whereas yeah. you like grime music, which is the most progressive, fast-moving yeah. culture going, it is just street-level, punk as fuck, and it's what is happening, and it's pulse. And again, 70% of that is shit, but mm-hmm. 30% is top, top level. Yeah. And it, it's a heartbeat, it's a pulse, it's real. Kids cannot eat it up quick enough. But then I'll say that about this scene. Can they put 50,000 people in a field for a show? No. Right, but they can sell out 302 arenas. See what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indie music, you can't tell me that of all the bands that have come through, they're all fucking pastiches of the past that 10, 15 years ago wouldn't have had a fucking look in because the songs aren't good enough and the package isn't good enough and it's not believable. Name me some bands. So, right now, what's your take on someone like Jerry Cinnamon who? hasn't got much label backing is is putting 50,000 people in the field well, maybe not 50,000 but he is attracting that big crowd at festivals and it has has garnered that real cult following from, from a management point of view and also what you've just said there which was fantastically insightful what's your take on someone like him Jerry Cinnamon I'm going to put it on the record now massive respect for Jerry Cinnamon like done it all off his own steam it's a zeitgeist thing that's come out of Scotland and and you know, it's manifested into something that's just mental. I mean, a bit I, like Lewis Capaldi as well, another I, Scott. I couldn't tell you um, the energy. Do I listen at home? Do I sit at home listening to Jerry Cinnamon? No, I don't. You know what I mean? That's it's not for me, right? But do I watch him live and think, "Fuck me, that energy." There's yeah. something there that is connecting with the 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 man. The, 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 the like it's a crossover thing that it's got to people that don't consume music like me and you do. Ninety nine point nine percent of music, people do not give a shit about music like we do, right? 
We are the gatekeepers, which is the term I fucking hate, that try and channel that music to the people that Jerry's got to. And he's done it like fucking unbelievably, right? And maximum respect to him. And he is an anomaly, you know? Again, you know, you know, he's borrowing heavily from the past. And, you know, I'm not, I, you know, it's a strange thing. Like, I see him talking openly about Ocean Colour Scene and Oasis, and I love that. Yeah, that's like my generation's do think, do you think it's also the street level thing you were just talking about? He is a working class lad from Glasgow who is writing about things he observes and lives through. You know, he's working about sniffing gear and going out and, you know, like being on the tools and just things that people fucking connect with, normal things. Yeah, people live through, absolutely. For me, it's like really straightforward, mainlining, obvious kind of cliches. But he's carried it and he's packaged it and, you know, people have bought into that to the point where he's selling out stadiums on his fucking own, you know? And his mantra is, I don't need anyone, fuck everybody. It's like, well, you don't have to say fuck everyone because no one's against you, bro. You know what I'm saying? It's like, if somebody had put Jerry Cinnamon in front of me four or five years ago and I listened to the demos, would I took it on? No, I probably wouldn't have. But that's what I'm saying to you. That it's my opinion against somebody else's. But then do I meet Jerry or do I watch Jerry on stage and do I look at his team? Fucking maximum respect. Maximum respect for what yeah. they Yeah, it's absolutely it's absolutely I, astonishing what he's come I, to. I, I, I couldn't have achieved that with him. I'll tell you that now. No way. Because I um, I would I wouldn't have done it that way. I'd I'd have I'd have, I'd have gone, well, I'm not sure about this. And, you know, but fucking hell. I mean, it's like a, it's like a train. You know, I mean, it's 30,000 records week one. And, um, you know, I, I look at a lot of these bands that kids are getting excited about, but these are the same kids that are trying to sell me that Gas Panic's one of the top five Oasis songs. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is your favourite Oasis song to put it on record? No, mum. Come, come, oh, John, I, I, I know. We couldn't believe we, we would stump you on this podcast. <laughs> <but we've done laughs> it. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know. I, 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 I tell you what, I listened to What's the Story Morning Glory yesterday for the first time in fucking years. I don't like to sit in the past too much. And I was saying yeah. to fucking pick up some new records. But I listened to, I mean, I'll tell you what, one of the most underrated Oasis songs is Hey Now. Yeah. <laughs> It's fantastic. I think Hey Hey Now probably get obviously gets overlooked because of what what else is on the record, um, but it's that's got a best, fantastic drum smash to it. The best, it's the best Oasis record. What was it like working with Pete and Carl? To be fair, to be fair, I mean that's more my business partner, Dave. Uh, right. Dave uh, was working with Carl on a solo record, and I think the Reformation was always going to be around the corner. But I think what um, what makes me laugh about the Libertines actually is I remember going to um, went up to Leeds Festival. Leeds, they were headlining. I think Kendrick was on before them. And you turn up to these gigs and there's like compounds within compounds and double security and all this stuff. But it's all because of the press that's, you know, surrounding Peter and like, you know, like the sun, the mirror, you know, they all went, they're the nicest bunch of lads going. Like Carl, Peter's like, you know, he's a clever, clever guy, you know what I mean? And he takes drugs, whatever. He's actually clean. He's clean at the minute. And a very, very intelligent man. Carl, Gary and John are just fucking lovely. You know what yeah. I'm saying? You know, within an hour of turning up to these places, people are just like, oh, right, okay. And then you can just see them like, packing staff down and 
all this it's just the idea that they're like insane is just fucking ridiculous um but we've opened a we've opened a hotel with them in margate called the albion rooms the albion rooms yeah 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 okay pete and carl thought they were going to run it which would have been <laughs> like super hands and jazz from peep show yeah. running the park, wouldn't it? <laughs> but, um, do you know what though carl, carl's been the foreman on the job there carl's actually pulled that hotel together man he's done it up he's, really brilliant man yeah, we had joe carnell on the first week from milburn it was a fantastic episode for what how did you end up working with joe funny one um the revue we've managed for like fucking hell, 10, 15 years. Um, you know, Joe wanted to do like a solo record and then, you know, there was talk of Milburn getting back together and, and John just put his hand up and went, look, you know, he's this lad I work with. I, I just think you both get on. Um, meet up with him and, and, you know, see how you get on. I mean, Joe just clicked straight away because we kind of cut from the same cloth. So, um, yeah, it was good, man. I, I like... It's funny because working with the enemy, like the Milburn, I knew, always knew who like Milburn were, but because I was doing my own thing, I was never kind of that immersed in mm. in the whole Sheffield thing. Do you know what I mean? But I remember taking the enemy up to Sheffield in 2006 to support Milburn at a MySpace party at the at the boardwalk. Wow. <laughs> at the boardwalk as well, yeah. They, they don't know, but some of our gear broke. So they, they'd gone out for a pint while the enemy were on. So we robbed all their equipment and used it. <laughs> put it back. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, wicked, wicked working with Joe. And, you know, all them lads are fucking great, man. Milburn. They're just, just good people, you know? Yeah. It makes the job easier, you know? In that era, who was, who was your favourite band to listen to? Was it any of the ones that you were representing? Um... I do think that that first Enemy record is criminally overlooked a lot. I, I think that's right. one record that, you know, that is a double platinum record that affected a lot of people socially. Uh, yeah. And uh, I still listen to some stuff off that. And I know that sonically I could have made a better record with them, but um, some of the songs are fucking amazing. Uh, I love some of the stuff off the first Twang record, although some of it is abysmal. Um <laughs> It was a time that was being filled with landfill indie band. There were so many coming out, and I imagine would love to hear your opinion on if we name some of them. Just uh, your, well, your opinion about the quality of some <laughs> opinions on someone say Franz Ferdinand. Franz Ferdinand, uh, I can't connect with them on a personal level because they're from a different background to me. It, I never thought they were that great live, Franz Ferdinand. That was my problem with them, but personally, a um, couple of good songs. Um, I don't know, man. All right. You know, they get... don't, just a bit of a don't know band. Yeah, I'm just, I was just a bit passive about it. It's never that arse, to be honest. Never went out and bought the record. Um, if it come on at the, at, the, at the club in 2003, 2002, take me out. Yeah, I'm there, maybe, with a beer in my hand, sound, enjoying it. But I'm yeah. not, I, I was never that convinced to kind of part with my own. You know what I mean? Sure. Okay, what about another indie floor for the special block party? Great band. Work with block party. Um, I, I actually drove them uh, for the week leading into their first album release and dropped. We did the party at the old Blue Last. Oh, nice. That's where, yeah. we, uh, that's where, we, reside. That's where we play, yeah. That's where we've got yeah, we're there, there every month. The launch party is Silent Alarm upstairs there. And, um, oh, that's where we play. Loads of people there, Hope of the States, everyone. It's good fun, man. But um, they, they, in many ways, that's kind of a seminal record that and a bit of an albatross for them because they, they were never going to get past that album he's fucking no. you know what little thoughts i never understood why that wasn't on that record probably one of their best songs but that's an amazing record man and, and 
you know, they're good people. And, I, and that was somebody that I literally was chomping at the bit to go down the shop and buy a record. I was, I was sold on that first record. Big time. Amazing first record, yeah. And finally, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Amazing first record. Um, yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, fucking hell. I saw them twice at the Barfly. Um, and I remember one time we... Um, I was talking about it the day on my Instagram. They were doing a show at the Barfly and it was fucking rammed and they were way too big to be playing there at that point. And that, there's a little side stairway at the Barfly to get, get, the, get the band. You can kind of go up there and load beers in and out or whatever. But it, when you open the door, it kind of comes out into the middle of the crowd. It's about 15 foot away from the stage. But it was the only way the band could get in because they weren't in the dressing room, which would have meant they'd have had to come through the, the main door through the crowd to get on stage. Tour manager's late. For some reason, he wasn't there or he was in the venue and he couldn't get out. So they were like, oh, dogs, can you go and get the band on stage? I thought, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I ran up the stairs and as I got there, it was like the band. And I was like, listen, you need to listen to me. Uh, you might, your tour manager's not here. I need to get you on stage. You're running late. They were like, okay, cool. They were very trusting. But it was like me, Kate Moss, them, and Harmar Superstar. And I th think like Sadie Frost. And we were all stuck on this little... Stairwell and we couldn't get in. I was like fucking whacking the door, whacking it. Eventually opened, managed to smuggle everyone in, get them on stage, and then they played, and it was just fucking amazing, man. Great, great live band. Yeah. Um, first album is unbelievable. Again, probably another albatross. I mean, how many bands these bands in that era? Yeah. First records, and then you know there's some fleeting moments on post records after that, but you just can't quite get to that level again. It's mad. Um, John, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. And just before you go, um, obviously, 17, 18 years in the business. Are there, are there any moments that spring to mind that make you roll on the floor laughing still and that you just can't get out of your head? Yeah, I mean... I mean Maintain this professional aura. Yeah, the, twa the twang. I mean, John in the, the twang, like, he, he, when he used to drink back in the day, he was fucking... I mean, you want to talk about rock and roll star, that geezer is fucking bananas. The first time I met him was at an enemy shoot with the enemy, where they were doing this thing called Best Midlands. And I remember walking in the room thinking, right, let's see what these fuckers are about. And, um, he was going round on a child's trike, fucking steaming, swigging a bottle of brandy, hammered at like midday. And I thought, fucking hell, these are nuts. But what was funny was, I think about a year and a half later, I remember they'd just finished mixing and mastering their record. And they went to see um, the label, which was Be Unique. And, and everyone wanted to sign a twang. And they were like, oh, we, we're not sure about, you know, you've made the right record and all this stuff. And they were having a nice, really nice fucking steak dinner. And John was steaming and just got up, picked a fucking gammon steak up and slapped the head of the label around the face with gammon steak. <laughs> they were dropped on the spot. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't, and, and, and they look back now and they're like, what the fuck were we doing? But at the time, they literally didn't give a fuck, mate. They, they were the real deal them like they're fucking mental does anyone behave like that now no. is it, it's all changed not, not, much. At, all. not at all yeah I, again i mean it's a place for that behavior i don't know but I, I, <laughs> yeah probably not fucking unbelievable uh mad character and then people like the rev as well i mean rev i just got reminded of something last week actually i remember being with uh for the milburn reformation shows mm, they um, were great Four nights, 10,000 tickets sold out in like six minutes, which was fucking mad. Yeah, one of them for me. 
Yeah, amazing, man. And um, I remember being with Rev and we were stood up on the side. There's like a little secret balcony. We were having a right crack up there. We were throwing coins, <laughs> food at the band while they were playing. And, uh, you know, it's good crack. And then Rev said, oh, I guess uh, some of the lads are they're here tonight watching. Uh, Joey Barton and loads of the Burnley squad. I was like, oh, they went, yeah, they're in the fucking crowd down there. I thought, nah, they're not, fuck off. He went, no, nah, they are. Anyway, Rev's like, ah, fuck it like just fucking right we're going out after the do I said where are you going he went we're going down here to this pub so I went down the pub and met him anyway Rev's not had a drink yet and uh, he's in this he's in this old BM that he's got and the fucking BM's rammed with people it's like all the Burnley squad in there right and he said me he's at the next gaff I went alright then so I went down the other place met him there pulled up in this old BM all the fucking Burnley squad got out then he opens the boot, pops the boot open. Fucking Joey Barton pops out of the boot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not being funny. Everyone got fucking paralytic. <laughs> but, right, time for me to go. Because uh, I had to head off back to the in-laws over in uh, Doncaster. So I headed off. And then um, next morning I've woke up, text Carnot. He's going, fucking hell, yes. great night, mate. Brilliant. Same again tonight. So it was another gig. And I've gone, uh, he goes, oh, See, I, I could see much of Rev. He went, mate, still on it. He went straight through, I think. I said, you're fucking joking. He went, nah, nah, he's straight. Anyway, got off the blower to him. About an hour later, turn on Channel 2. I said, what are you on about? I went, turn on Channel 2. Turned it on. Fucking close up of the Rev. Same clothes the night before. Gone right through the nights. It's like four in the afternoon. And it's the Crucible, the snooker. And he's <laughs> in the VIP section, steaming next to Roy Keane, who looks fucking fuming. And he's <laughs> on camera and all sorts. And that's the rev, mate. He's an absolute... <laughs> that's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks so much for telling us that. Nice. And, um, I, I've, seen that that, mate. I've seen he, that picture. He was the master's... He was, fun fact with the rev, he was actually the master's of ceremony in my wedding as well. So he actually oh, did really? become the rev. There you go. Yeah. Lovely. Well, we'd, we'd love to have him on the pod. I'd, we'd, we'd love to have Joey Barton, in fact. He'd be good. He knows his music, doesn't he? Well, that was it. he does, actually. But that, that, at my wedding, the same wedding where the twang came to my wedding and gave me a wedding card, and I opened it a couple of days later, and it said, all right, dorks, here's 30 quid. You've had the last of the money off us now, you fucking bastard. John, <laughs> right? And at the same wedding do, John ran me up to apologise two days later from the twang. I said, what are you apologising for? He went... Well, a couple of years ago, I threatened to stab Carl Barat at a festival. So I tried to apologise to him about it at your wedding. It got a bit awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Mad characters. Good Love fun. It. Good Love fun. It. Brilliant. No, John, cool. thanks so much for that. An absolute yeah. pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming I'll on. Get, I'll, get, I'll get Phil Twang. He'll definitely do it. I'll get the Yeah. yeah. Get them all. Get them all on. No. At these times, you know, they can't be doing much else, can they? No. Fucking <laughs> thank you so much for downloading and listening to the mad sounds podcast if you're on spotify please hit the follow button or if you're on apple please hit the subscribe button to receive the latest edition of the podcast straight to your phone as soon as we release it